This is the Dallas Morning News. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome in to Sports Day Insider, powered by the Dallas Morning News and DallasNews.com. I am your cheery interim host, Devin Grant, joined by my pal, who I think also is in a little bit of a happier mood this week. I don't know why. David Moore. David, how's your mood? Let me say, when you tell people how cheery you are, I'm not sure that necessarily comes across the way you think it does. You don't think I'm convincing? Within your skin, maybe you feel effusive and ebullient, but I'm not sure that it crackles on the mic that way. Well, it's better that... that there's actually life in my voice this week as opposed to the, <laughs> um, And it's all because, of course, Kevin Sherrington has talked. It's all here. because you're in charge. You've taken over. Your um, dream has been realized. This is today. This is Evan Grant's podcast. I'm all about power. Kevin is off on, on some uh, international um, business trip vacation. I don't know what he's doing, but he's not here. So we don't have to listen to Kevin tell us what he wrote. <laughs> and we don't have to mention it if we don't want. Of course, he hadn't written in a while because he's been off. He's, he's, he's been off all week. I haven't even noticed. <laughs> so, uh, David, what have you been up to? Uh, I've been lamenting Kevin's absence. I've kind of gone into a funk here. I uh, haven't done much. Uh but then the Cowboys had this thing called free agency that forced me to uh, uh, move around and also uh, did something they normally don't do this time of year, make a couple of trades. Yeah, we're going to get into that. We're going to get yeah. into the, the mood on the Cowboys. Um, but since, because today's vibe is obviously mood, everybody's mood. And my mood here in Surprise um, is really good as we, Count down the final five days of spring training before the Rangers come home. Um, it has so is nothing- this Saturday. They break on Saturday. Is that it? Or? Saturday afternoon after a game with the Padres, come home. They play two games against Kansas City on Monday and Tuesday. Off on Wednesday and open against the Philadelphia Phillies on Thursday, March thirtieth. Um, for what should be an interesting year, uh, I. I I think as we head into the the last week of spring training, the thing that stands out the most to me is this pitching. We all know what the potential downfalls of this pitching staff are, that that they are prone to injuries, and at some point in time, somebody's likely to get hurt. But what does stand out is the quality and the talent of these arms and the fact that pretty much they pitched all spring, and it's looked really, really good. Uh, Jacob DeGrom made his first A-game start on Sunday, and I don't recall spring training starts, but I will recall that one. It was three innings of um, of special stuff. And, and scouts that I saw said the same thing to me. 
Well, it, I mean, not not to read too much into this period, which doesn't mean you can't be encouraged. But when was the when was the last time you emerged from spring training, watching the Ranger staff saying? This starting staff is going to be really good. Have you have you seen a, a a previous stretch like what you've witnessed since you've been there? Not you know not the last week. I mean, I, you go back um, from last from between off days. They had an off day on la on um, Tuesday a week ago, and they're off today. But between off days, I think the starting pitching um, had a streak of sixteen and two thirds scoreless innings over four starts. Dane Dunning went out yesterday. He did give up some runs, but he also made it through six innings. And the thing is, Dane Dunning is probably going to be your sixth starter. He's probably going to open up the season in the bullpen as a long reliever behind Jacob deGrom and behind Nathan Uvalde because I think both those guys will be on on pretty restricted pitch counts. He and Dunning and Cole Reagans, guys who would be considered depth starters, have pitched their way to the point where I don't think you can construct a 13-man staff here and not say that those were two of the best 13 pitchers in camp. They, they forced their way onto the roster. Um, and, and there's a use for them, too, because those other guys, those two guys that I just mentioned in particular, will be on something of a of, of a restricted pitch count early. So, um, Is it fair to say the, the, the sixth starter on this staff in some ways, given the injury history of it and the restrictions, is is as close as you can get to a fifth starter when you well, look at rotations for the league? Is Dane Dunning, and in 2021, he was the Rangers pitcher of the year. So for whatever yeah. that's, it's, you know. Um, and the seventh the seventh starter is Cole Reagans, and I think in 2021, he was their minor league pitcher of the year. So the depth level has definitely changed. And, um, you know, I will. I tried to recall you Darvish's first start for the Rangers in spring because that was the last time I recall a really hyped up spring training start. And I went back and I looked, and he pitched two scoreless innings, and it was nice. But the guys who who have been around, who I asked if they could refresh my memory, some all thought that you know the command was a little bit more scattered. Jacob Degrom came out, pitched for the first time in an A game, started his first inning, threw thirteen pitches, eleven strikes. Uh, all of the fastballs were 97 miles or higher, um, topping out at 100. Then came out in the second inning through nine pitches, all of them strikes. And again, you know, the fastball at 97 to 100, um, threw a couple of curveballs in there at 84 that guys just absolutely were overmatched by. And of course, with a 91, 92 mile an hour slider, uh, he, he can just be devastating. And that's what elite pitching looks like. And it's something that I haven't seen around the Rangers in in quite some time. You know, even when their rotations were good, it would be hard to say that they had um, elite-type performances. This kind of preps you for an elite-type performance. And it comes right after Nathan Uvalde had, I think, six strikeouts in, in three innings of work. Uh, and John Gray had four innings of shutout ball against the Dodgers. Uh, it's just been... It, it's been an impressive stretch to watch. And I, I, I think that it sets the Rangers up well going into the season. If, if now, I mean, especially with these guys who are going to be on pitch counts early in the season, if the bullpen 
can hold up its its end of the bargain. And I think that's been the biggest question that still is yet to be answered here. Um, I think a stronger starting rotation obviously has impact on the bullpen because you're asking less guys to pitch less often. But I do think that the Rangers are still sitting here five days from breaking camp, not sure who their closer is. And not I was sure. going to ask how how defined are the roles at this point, and when you go in, and when you go when you're trying to sort through that going into the season, how difficult is it, and how I mean, there's a trial and error period, but you can't do that for too long. So I guess just just where does that find stand as far as defining their roles and, and what you no, think will happen early? The big project when when they get back to games on Wednesday, I think that's the big project over the final five days out here is to really hone in on what they want to do if they have a save situation uh, present itself on opening day, because I don't know that they've got a definitive answer. Um, Jose, what would your answer be? What would my answer be? Yeah. Um, that's a good question, because I, my default answer would be Jose Leclerc. He pitched really well down the stretch last year. He's got the most closing experience um, of the returning guys, Will Smith had a little bit has more closing experience, but it's a longer period time ago, time period ago. Uh, but Leclerc's command has not been great this spring. His fastball velocity has been a little bit down. Um, you know, we're talking 92, 93 miles an hour. That's average to slightly below for a closer. So I think the Rangers want to see if it perk if it perks up here in the last outing or two uh, before they commit to him. Uh, Will Smith, uh, who they signed late, Bruce Bochy had him use, used him as a closer in San Francisco uh, one season, and he produced a thirty save season. But that was seven years ago. You know, he's he's a different pitcher now. Uh, he's got the experience, and he certainly got some trust from Bochy. Uh, and maybe you could start the season with him there. Uh, I think Jonathan Hernandez has the best stuff. The other day, he went two innings. Um, when he's on, you know, he's got the most overpowering stuff out there and you've got Ian Kennedy sitting there on a non-roster contract as a guy who I think the Rangers are going to try and find a spot on the roster for. So they've got some options that they can choose from all with varying degrees of, of, of save experience. But I do think that where the, where the starting pitching has all basically been settled and as planned from day one i think that uh that the bullpen has is is, there's going to be significant discussion on the bullpen side do you think bochi would be inclined like you say from what you've seen at this moment hernandez maybe have the best stuff but he doesn't you know because he hasn't really done it there's a question there would bochi be inclined to install or invest that position in someone who hasn't done it before or or is he a manager who's more likely to maybe we work our way to that but for the start let's do this i think i i think if i'm trying to think where he's at i think he he's a guy who values track record um both kennedy and smith have track records as closers they're veterans they know how to handle that situation a little bit um they want to see where Leclerc is velocity-wise in the last week. But, yeah, I, I do think that this is a guy who is going to value some track record uh, initially. And if you can – listen, Jonathan Jonathan came back last year after missing a season with Tommy John. 
Uh, he was ineffective for uh, a good portion in September. He started to get more effective again. I think if you can put him into situations that are leveraged situations and, and important situations, but not necessarily thrust him right into the closer's role if you don't have to, um, if you can get by with that, I think that that might be the most prudent way to do it. It's, you know, we're, like you say, you're going to break camp uh Saturday, there's more to talk about this team going into next week's opener, we will. Um, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and maybe get to the World Baseball Classic. And it, what are your thoughts on that? I know they're following it on social media and elsewhere. I get the sense that there are some baseball people who just have no use for this, uh, think it's a distraction from where the focus should be this time of year and and others are you know th- this is a this is kind of a breath of fresh air this is where the sport needs to go where, where do you stand on that so i i feel like i'm kind of in a weird spot um i'm not that into watching every pitch of the world baseball classic and for me as a fan knowing that there are pitch limits on these guys, and we are not pitching these games like they are the seventh game of the World Series um, because you've got to take your starter out at a, at, at a predetermined time, um, and, and, and there are usage limits on certain guys. Uh, I'm not quite as into it as I would be, say, the World Series. I know this has been the big question for like all the Latin players. Which is more important, this or the World Series? My, my perspective, though, is... This is important and very important to a lot of people around the world. And it's been exceptionally cool to see people into it. And so whether or not the game fits um, my lens or whether or not, you know, I've got a quote-unquote player playing in it, this is good for baseball. It's good for the sport, and it's good. um, And in turn, I think that becomes good for the major leagues. Where people get sideways on things are, well, Team USA doesn't show as much emotion, so they're not as into it as the Latins. I don't think that's true. I, I think that in some ways, Team USA bears a little bit of a burden um, because this element of international competition in baseball is so is so foreign to them. And the guys from Puerto Rico who came over, the guys from the Dominican who came over, the guys from Japan even who came over. They, they've known when they came to, to the major leagues that they were carrying their flag with them to represent their country. Um, so I, I think it's easier for them. And it's just the way that they play the game. It's the way they've always played the game. And if those guys are more demonstrative and those guys, you know, flip bats higher, that's great. Um, Trey Turner did a grand slam that turned around a game the other night. And he did what he, what he needed to do and he was fired up. And it, there's no... Like, there's no scale here. I think what the World Baseball Classic should be is a celebration of the game worldwide and acknowledgement that this game can grow and can continue to expand its branches. Look, we saw Great Britain win a game this year. They're going to be back in the tournament in 2026. We saw Team Israel the last time out upset the Netherlands and advance to the, the quarterfinals. And, they're, and they won another game this year, and they're going to be back in 26. And I, Ian Kinsler is here in camp now. He was Team Israel's manager. He, you know, he loved the whole element of it. And um, 
I, I, what means I, different things to different countries because they're at different stages, and that's the whole idea of a celebration. This is not, this is not a determination of what country in the world is the best, as much as it is a celebration and spreading the sport. And you know, there, I think there's some parallels with what you had with like the dream team when you started having NBA players going to, you know, it meant a much different thing to the U S than it did other countries, but to see how other countries responded to that and to see how the sport took hold in those countries in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise, because now they're actually in competition rather than just viewing from afar. I mean, it's just every sport needs this, it seems to me. Well, and, you know, the 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 the, the elephant in the room, of course, is obviously the injuries. Guys have gotten yeah. injured during the WBC. Um, Edwin Diaz, the Mets closer, uh, injured his knee, is out for the season. Puerto, uh, Puerto Rico was jumping up and down when they beat the Dominican Republic to eliminate them. I've seen guys jump up and down like that after plenty of regular season games, okay? I've seen guys get hurt with a celebration of a regular season game. I also think we talked about this, David, beforehand. I don't want to pretend to be a doctor, but Diaz had a full thickness tear of that ligament. I watched that celebration, and I've tried to watch an angle where Edwin is. I cannot see how a player did what he did without having some level of, of um, structural integrity issues already existing when that happened. To me, it was a matter of time, right? It happened there, but when? If it's going to happen with that at this stage of the year, do you really believe it would not have happened within the next few weeks? You know, because there was nothing abnormal uh, about how the leg was torqued, the the force on it, anything like that. And, And how often in any sport do you see Really, when you know right away something serious is when a guy goes down and there's no contact, right? Because that it it just gave way. One other thing I wanted to mention on the WBC uh, in relation to injury, David, before we get out of here is, you know, Jose Altuve mm-hmm. also suffered yeah. a broken hand when he was hit by a pit. And he's going to miss two and a half months. And again, that's unfortunate. But look, three years ago, I sat there in Surprise Stadium when Willie Calhoun was hit by a pitch by Julio Arias in the jaw, fractured his jaw, and the only reason he didn't miss time is because three days later, the pandemic shut down all of baseball. But Mm -hmm. these injuries happen. And so to sit here and blame the WBC, I think, is is misdirected. And in particular, I want to address that Keith Olbermann went on and had a screed on Twitter that came across typically as a, I thought, xenophobic, kind of bigoted, old, grumpy old man, especially when he talked about players who were playing for countries that they had some genetic uh, hereditary heritage to, but weren't necessarily natives of. You know, Israel comes to mind. Italy comes to mind. And again, I want to tell you that knowing Ian Kinsler firsthand, the exposure that he's had to what is his heritage has been so enriching for him. And so to say something like that these guys are playing, this was Oberman's tweet, right? Guys, you're playing where their grand for countries where their grandmother got laid. I just thought it was unacceptable, and it's the kind of thing that holds baseball back, and it's the kind of thing that keeps this sport kind of having this uh, uh, the narrative that it's you know it's just a sport for grumpy old men, and and it's unfortunate. I think we need to move away from that, and we yeah, need to it, move away from baseball too, probably right now. 
Yeah, but but real quick, just on that before we do move to the Cowboys, your exact look, Keith Olbermann and others or certainly their opinion is valid to them if that's the opinion they hold. They they have every right to hold that opinion to say, this means nothing to me. You do not have the right to say, because it means nothing to me, it should mean nothing to you and your country. And, and too it, often, that's, that's right. where the lines are crossed, you know? 100%. Um, all right, so let's talk about something else that has people fired up, obviously, in Dallas and clearly all over the world. Um, the Cowboys, <laughs> the Cowboys in free agency and the trade market. Uh, should we start with who's left the building, or should we start with who's entering the building? Well, let, let's go with who left, just from the standpoint of because this move we had discussed it before, and uh, how it was impending. But uh, the move actually took place the day after we did the podcast last week. And so this is the Cowboys parting ways with Ezekiel Elliott, who I think arguably uh, from a player standpoint is is, uh, a face kind of associated with this team over the last seven years as much as any other. Uh, I think some other players, certainly Dak is in the others, but uh, especially especially going back to 2016 in that class where Ezekiel Elliott came in with Dak Prescott and uh, kind of signaled uh, uh, a sense of joy and uh, a, a sense of, of uh, hope and maybe anticipation going forward that this is starting a new phase uh, in, in the Cowboys. Now, it did materialize from there, and there's some other things to discuss on that, but, uh, but just the the, the joy and the passion that Ezekiel Elliott played with, uh, especially early in his career. Uh, but as we discussed, uh, especially for a running back in the NFL, uh, the landscape changes pretty quickly and uh, does not nearly have the impact that he did before. Uh, for what he was being paid, it was very difficult to reconcile what role he would have going forward. And even though... Uh, his side had indicated they were willing to take a pay cut in order to stay. Finding what that number was that was fair and wasn't insulting to someone who had been such a big part of the franchise for so long was just something they never really could come close to. And so, um, as we said, I, I thought it was apparent it was going to happen. Uh, you know, a lot of people outside thought it wasn't. They thought that, well, what does the Jones family do? They're going to, you know, they hate to part ways with guys. They, you know, got, you know, they, there's an emotional attachment here. And in the end, Jerry Jones will find a way to move heaven and earth and the salary cap to keep him here. Um, Tyron Smith, who's been here even longer than, um, um, you know, Ezekiel Elliott has been, been much more quiet about it, but also been a very high level of performance falls into that category as well. But, we talked about this before, too. If you go back and remember, Tyron Smith has quietly gone about doing his job, and he has always been amenable to structuring his deals in a way that were very team-friendly to stay in this club going forward. Ezekiel Elliott, when he had leverage, and rightfully so, used it. But with two years left in a deal, held out to get a deal, 
which then became beyond market value for what his contribution was. So my point all along was they had two very difficult decisions to do with uh, Ezekiel Elliott and, and Tyron Smith. And when people said these two are the same on how they were viewed by the Jones family, I think both are viewed the same in terms of appreciation but also go back to how they dealt with each other on a business aspect, which you can't always separate when you're a family business running a team, which the Jones family is. And I I always thought it was more likely that they would be able to structure a deal to retain Tyron Smith more so than Ezekiel Elliott. And that's what happened. So I I guess the two questions I've got on Zeke are number one, what is his legacy in Dallas? I, I mean, I think you could make the case maybe that he's the third best running back in franchise history behind Emmett and Dorsey. Pretty clear, yeah. Now, I think I think he holds third all to himself. I think there's a I think there's a gap between one and two to Elliott at three, but there's arguably a bigger gap from Elliott at three down to four and five. And so, so how drive that legacy to people? I mean, because he did not. Again, it's the same thing we talk about with quarterbacks. Tony and Emmett have multiple Super Bowls. Yes. yes. Not. Zeke Elliott has not been past the divisional round of the playoffs. Uh, now he did win two rushing titles in his first three years in the league. Uh, at this moment, while he's still looking for a team, I think on the all-time rushing list, he still cracked the top 40. Uh, he's I believe 38, and uh, the only active rusher uh, ahead of him is Henry in uh, Tennessee. So those guys are ahead of, of everyone else. But again, this is a this is a career that burned bright early and flamed out for a for an impact player earlier than normally you would envision. And, well, that, and that's where you kind of deal with the legacy, you know. That was going to be the second question. Did, did did Zeke decline, or has the position and the way the position is used changed? It's both. Uh, the position has changed even more. It's more, um, you know, guys like Zeke, the hammer running backs, are still very valuable, uh, third and short, fourth and short. In some ways, are more valuable now because teams are going for it more on fourth down, fourth and short than they ever have before. And, and in the red zone, uh, where it's very difficult to move the ball, especially inside the five-yard line, uh, I, I think Ezekiel Elliott is as efficient and effective still as any back in the league. But... So much else of the game is in space. Uh, it's about making people miss. It's not the it's not it's not the Emmett Smith days of okay, load right, go. You know, we're just going to send bodies at you. Uh, we're going to steamroll you, and he's going to pick the spots and and go and pick up four or five yards here and there. Uh, the, the NFL today is more about winning with big plays. You have to get big plays to win. Most big plays come in the passing game. Um, now, what what you had happened and why you you saw a changing of the guard as far as the lead back this past year between Ezekiel uh, Elliott and Tony Pollard is because Pollard had more of those big hit runs. Um, you know, he could rip off a 40, 50 yard run. Uh, in, in fact, you know, him and him and, um, um, you know, it, McCaffrey in, in San Francisco are the two most effective backs in the league when it came to big plays and yards per touch, running game or passing game. 
So um, he, you know, Tony Pollard developed into a big play threat that Ezekiel Elliott no longer was in a league that values big plays even more than it did when Ezekiel Elliott came into the league seven years ago. All right, so Zeke's gone. Dalton Schultz is gone. We we expected that to happen, right? He's yeah. He's signed with Houston. He's signed with Houston for less than what the Cowboys offered him last year to keep him on a three-year deal. So he bet on himself. Uh, did probably did not factor in enough what the market was going to be in the draft this year, which is an outstanding draft at tight end. One of the most talented and, and deepest drafts at tight end in the first two to three rounds uh, that the league's seen in a long, long time. So teams are hanging back going, well, we might be able to get a guy cheaper than what we would have to pay Dalton Schultz. So Schultz for the second consecutive years on a one-year deal, this time in Houston, uh, kind of betting on himself and trying to recoup that uh, that long-term deal he wants in the market next year. All right. So let's talk about why people are excited. Um, they're excited despite losing Schultz and despite losing Zeke because of what's walked into the building and the way the Cowboys, the way the Cowboys have approached the trade market and free agency. It, 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 it just appears a little bit different to me. Does, is it not? Oh, I, I think there's a, there's a big difference and, and, uh, you can sense it in the Cowboy fans I've talked to many of who have, who are just disgusted this time of year and roll their eyes with the, uh, judicious approach that the Cowboys have taken in free agency for the last 12 years and just kind of roll their eyes and go, okay, wait me when the draft starts because this team has drafted pretty well. But, you know, what you've had here is this has become a draft and develop team, especially these last three years under Mike McCarthy, as we've discussed. It was moving in that direction, but I think it's really accelerated since McCarthy has gotten here. And really in free agency, what you'd seen in the previous 12 years was the Cowboys spent very little money in free agency. They didn't pursue the top names because they felt um, after years of pursuing top names that they were overpaying to get the top names on the market. Uh, so they, decid- they decided to take a more uh, cost-effective approach, which is let's go after the second and third tier veteran free agents, uh, guys we know can fulfill a position for us. And who are good enough to start for us if we need them going into the season, but not so good that we're going to sit there in the first or second round and say, oh, well, we're not going to draft a player at this position because we just signed a guy at that position in free agency. So the whole approach the last 12 years has been to fill your glaring weaknesses on your roster through free agency to the point that you can have a pure draft, that you can go into the draft and say, okay, uh, we really can take the best player by and large here. We're not going to have to reach a round or two earlier than we want to take a wide receiver or a cornerback or uh, or a running back because we don't have anyone at that position. Uh, this guy is good enough to get us through. So let's just see. But this year, they've positioned themselves at that even better, I think, than they have in a long time. And two, they supplemented that to get people excited. They used fifth-round picks to go out and get Stephen Gilmore, who 
is a perennial Pro Bowl cornerback. And then to go out and get Brandon Cooks at wide receiver, which was the other position they really needed to upgrade. And this is a player, while he's never made the Pro Bowl, six times in a seven-year span, he had a 1,000-yard season. And he's one of the fastest receivers in the league. And he gives them, uh, you know, you you hear players talk now about the ability to take the top off a of defense. That's what Brandon Cooks can do with his speed. And that gives you more speed. It helps you spread the defense and allows you more room to attack underneath. It's not always about going deep and vertical over the top. And so by by acquiring two proven veteran performers and not giving up anything more than a fifth-round pick in return, um, I, I think a lot of people are saying, well, look, now Dallas has done what Philadelphia did last year. And other teams did the year before that. This makes a lot of sense. So that I, I sense an excitement that uh, from fans saying, "Well, maybe this approach is a little bit different." Do you or do you feel like it changes how they approach the draft now at all? No, I, I think this uh, this just allows them to double down and say, "Okay, let's sit here." Uh, I that doesn't mean they don't have a priority list, right? Uh, when you're sitting there. At, you know, deep in the first round, which is where, and deep in every round, which is why where they're going to be because they were twelve and five the last two seasons. Uh, a lot of talent's gone off the board, but they could sit there in the first round if the top running back is still on the board at that point, and running backs tend to drift. Uh, Bijan will definitely be that guy this year. There's no question. I have serious doubts that Bijan Robinson is going to be there when the Cowboys draft in the in the you know, deep 20s. But uh, you could go running back. You could go tight end if you want. But, you know, if there's a separation and the guys you really liked at that position aren't there, you can you can take another corner. You can, you can take an offensive lineman. You can take a defensive lineman. I, I would say really coming out of this draft, I, I do think because it's such a good draft at tight end, they should take another tight end early in this draft. I do think really – Running back is imperative for them to do, and I think you'll see that. Other than those two positions, um, I think they just take whoever the best players are who are there. And, and you know, especially when you get second, third, fourth round, there are clusters of guys, right? And they're over several positions. And so then you can make some positional uh, decisions that kind of tilt the board. But, um, no, I, I think they've set themselves up uh, – and not just because of what they did this offseason, but because they've been so successful in drafting and developing players over these last four to five years. They're really in a position where they can draft that way this year. And and I think it's just an extension of what they put in place. And, and this is kind of coming to fruition for them. Does re-signing Cooper Rush have, anything, have any impact on whether or not they take a quarterback somewhere? No, uh, because I, I think... I'm convinced they're going to take a quarterback. I I believe it will be the third right, third day. It'll be so it'll be fourth round on. I don't think they'll take one higher. Um, and and they want to develop that player and not be not be pre, not be pressured into oh we got to get this guy ready sooner rather than later because we don't have a true backup. And, and to me, Cooper Rush Cooper Rush is another example of how successful. Uh, this offseason and this free agency period has been for Dallas because 
no one was talking about how you had to sign him. But he's the guy, once he's gone, you say, what are we going to do there? But now that he's back, you just keep moving and you have no concern about, well, what's the best, who's the best backup quarterback to bring in and how much are we going to have to pay? And are we going to have to pay that guy more than would like? And does that keep us from picking up another offensive lineman or another uh, cornerback for depth? And uh, that, that was a significant signing for them because this guy – uh, in very limited use, is 5-1 and one as a backup, as a starter for the Cowboys. And there aren't a lot of teams uh, that feel that good, have that sort of resume on their backup quarterback in-house. So we feel good about the Rangers. Um, we feel good about the Cowboys. Uh, how do we feel about the Mavs this week? Not so much on that front. Uh, and again, as, as we do this, we don't want to detract from Jason Kidd's birthday today. So happy birthday, Jason Kidd. Um, but I, I think his celebration will be brief because there's only 10 games left in the regular season. And this team is not where he or anyone else envisioned it would be this close to the playoffs beginning. Um, you know, I, in fact, I'll go as far as to say that when you look at uh, the games that Luka Doncic has missed here, when you look at the the games Kyrie Irving has missed uh, w- with his injury, uh, where they are now, how close everything is in the Western Conference, they they put them in themselves in a position where I don't think you can necessarily assume or guarantee they're going to be even in a play-in game at this point. Um, it's still likely. I think you're going to see that happen. But um, look, there's only 10 games left. Luca and Kyrie have played very few games together. Um, you know, I, I think with this injury to Luca Doncic, you've seen the toll, the wear and tear in playing those extra minutes early in the season has taken on him. Um, Kyrie Irving. Um, missed some games. Scott here has also dealt with a toe issue. Uh, he walked out of the uh, game last night's game. Their third loss to Memphis in a span of 10 days, which certainly doesn't inspire confidence going into the postseason. Um, wearing a boot. Uh, he said it was more of a precaution. Uh, there's just no need to put uh, weight on it when he's not playing. But that's still a concern. Uh, and what we've seen all season from this team, you know, they had a, what, a 13 point lead, uh, with 16 minutes left and wound up losing the way they did last night. Uh, they don't have a defense that can close out games. So no lead is safe. Uh, you have to extend everyone beyond what they need to do to pull out some of these games. Uh, I, I think they're in a bad way. I, I don't, I don't see that they've been able to play together enough as a unit to where anyone should have any faith or belief in their ability to get out of the first round of the playoffs, no matter how good uh, Luka and Kyrie Irving are. So they are currently, as we sit here on a Tuesday morning, they are 7th at 36-36 and 36 in the West. The Lakers are 11th at 35-37. and 37. So they're clearly bunching in that 7 through, really through 12, because the Pelicans are 34-37. and 37. If, if this team were to fall to 11 and that's not unrealistic it's it it it, it well it's it's not 
it's not unrealistic is the only way to say it. Um, if this team were to fall there and it ends up out of the playoffs entirely, how much of a disaster has this season become? Well, it would be a disaster and there would be ramifications. And, and what I find interesting here, we discussed this and, and other people as well. When the trade for Kyrie Irving was made, there was a lot of skepticism about whether or not this would work long term, right? Uh, the whole question of, of how Kyrie Irving would fit in here, what it meant for the franchise going forward, uh, given Kyrie's history, why would you make this move? But all of those questions were about whether or not this would work going forward, and it and it centered on Kyrie Irving and his, let's say, erratic behavior off the court at times, factoring into what it would do. No one envisioned this failing for the way it reason it's failed, which is they just haven't been able to play together. But now you get back to, okay, Kyrie Irving and the and the franchise have a decision to make at the end of this year. Do we go forward with Kyrie Irving and does he want to be here? And now you have to take into context, how does Kyrie Irving feel about staying here? Well, Has so he what, seen enough in this period of time to want to stay here? So th- there's so many, to me, this just added another, another dynamic on top of all the other questions you had about whether or not this was going to work out going forward. I'm not going to ask you to put yourself in Kyrie's shoes because I don't know that we could possibly come to try and think what he ever thinks, but you're the Mavericks. Are you, do you want to walk away from this or do you want to sign up for more? Okay. You walk away. What do you have? And you'll have some money, but who are you going to be able to get with it? And often when you have the money, you have to overpay you know, just to get that person, and then it impacts you going forward. So I, I I really thought when they made the move that they they tied their hands behind their backs to where if they didn't sign Kyrie going forward for whatever it was going to be, I, I did not see how they could spin out of this and sell it to their fans that this was a move that made sense for them. And t- to me, um, they're in that position squared now, you know, but, but as we said, it's not just the franchise's decision. It is Kyrie's decision. And has, has he played enough with Luka Doncic to say, Hey, I like this. We can really do something here. Um, have, have they bonded emotionally? Do they have a good feel for each other? I mean, they're just so much that you want to put in place so guys can feel good about something I don't know how anyone can feel good about where this thing is now. And so that just, then that just underscores all of the looming questions and significant questions that were there in the first place. I mean, this was, we talked about it and and Mark Cuban conceded this, that, you know, this was a, when you're looking at the risk reward ratio, there was a huge risk in this. Um, To me, you're just, you're just underlining the risks since he's gotten here and you've seen very little, if any, reward from it. Hindsight six weeks out, would you have would you have made this trade or not? Well, I never would have made it initially because to me it's not just about this season. It's about going forward. And and the other thing people are saying, well, you get a player that talented, um it it 
you know, it alters your equation and you should be willing to go all in and make it work. And, and I, while I, while I understand that, um, I still think it's being blinded by talent in short term. And, and here was the other part, because it's not, it was never, ever strictly your decision about whether you're going to be able to go forward with him. Uh, there's no contract in place going forward. Even if he indicated he would be willing to stay here and do something, there's nothing signed. There's nothing in place. And when you have something uh, unravel like the end of this season has, it changes everyone's perception a little bit, right? So I, I just thought it was being um, a little unrealistic uh, to just say, and, and here's the one part I don't know that we ever really talked about much. And other people are going like, well, you needed to get someone um, next to Luka Doncic that uh, you need to get another star player. You, you couldn't have him continue to steer, carry the load. You needed another elite player next to him and all. And I agree. Here's the other side of that. If you get an elite player in, he's only here for a couple of months and then he moves on. What are the ramifications? Does Luca become frustrated that, well, now the talent level has dropped and we can't get another player as good as Kyrie Irving in here? I'm getting frustrated with this franchise. How is it viewed on the outside? Is it viewed like, well, you know, and, and this is going to depend on if that happens, what does Kyrie say about his minimal time playing with Luca? Uh, was it enjoyable? Did he share the ball? Were they, I mean, it's just, you, you create more issues than were there before. In my mind, it was always a potential to create more issues than you resolved with this move with Kyrie Irving. So last question, is, do you are you at all concerned that, I mean, this will be the third iteration of what the Mavericks have tried to build around Doncic. Yeah. Doncic. Are you at all concerned that Luka is so good that you can't build a team? <laughs> That's a legitimate question, right? I mean, he he's not the first. I mean, you know, uh, Allen Iverson, in some respect, kind of fit that role in Philadelphia for a while. We've seen that. Uh, and, and you get, if you get crossways on the cap, early, which the, the Mavericks have, well, it's very difficult to, to pull yourself out of that situation and, and, and get, have the financial wherewithal uh, to build and put around it. And again, it, it hits home even a little bit more now, right? Because you had a team that went to the Western Conference Finals ahead of when anyone projected, but then the second most important person to doing that leaves at the end of the season, the whole tone and tenor of the team changes and you've just been groping this year. You don't have a defensive identity, which you developed last year. Uh, we were talking earlier about what are the roles on the, on the bullpen for the Rangers? What roles do guys on this team have? Uh, they've just kind of had to fall into this mix and match team at the moment. And that's, that's exactly what they are. They're not a team. They're mix and match talent that haven't had time to play together to develop any sort of cohesiveness or chemistry to take into the postseason and expect to have any sort of success. All right. Well, so two out of three is not bad. We feel good about the Rangers. We feel good about the Cowboys. Maybe not so much about the Mavericks. We hadn't, we have not discussed the NCAA tournament. Um, I will get to that once we we'll get, get down to that next week. Yeah. Um, I, as always, the tournament is just a delight. 
it's uh, what I've found is it's harder for me to pay attention to brackets and to the tournament because ever since they went to this format where teams are more geographically centered and they're not necessarily playing with other teams from their bracket, it, it, it gives me a harder time, like kind of concentrating on how this impacts certain things. But as usual, there were all a number of gems of games. Yeah. I don't think you could ask for anything better than another number one beating a six, uh, another number 16 being a number one in fairly Dickinson. Um, so I will get to the tournament next week when Kevin is back. I'm sure he'll have some hot takes from wherever he had been. Um, I, I don't envision Ke- like Kevin always just goes to the lake in Arkansas. I don't envision him as kind of, you know, the world traveler, even though I guess he's covered Olympics for us. Yeah. That's the only time he goes out of the country though, right? I, I mean, maybe it's, because I don't want to inflict Kevin. Go to the Ozarks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that now that's my question. How do you think our chemistry, we were talking about the Mavericks. What about our chemistry today with no Kevin? Um, I, I think we're, we're developing a rapport. Uh, I, I, you know, I, my timing is a little bit off, but I'll, I'll get it down with you eventually. If we can just get rid of Kevin. Yeah. If we just do more shows without Kevin, I think we're, I think we can hit on that formula quicker. No, it's all good. Something it's all to consider good. going forward. That's all I'm saying. That we're uh, we're always happy for Kevin to be back. I, I I I don't know what the right words to say are there. Um, well, <laughs> we'll be doing this, Kevin. We hope you're having some pina coladas or whatever it is, wherever you may be. Um, and uh, we will talk about the start of the Ranger season next week. Um, there's always something going on in Cowboy Final Land. Or start the Ranger season, yeah, and the uh, NFL meetings in Scottsdale, Arizona next week. Of course, so look, the, the, the NFL honors will be out here. Maybe it'll yes, actually they will. for them. It has been insanely cold this spring. You'll be leaving, and then I'll be uh, arriving. Uh-oh. I think you're going to be staying in nicer surroundings, Dave. Yeah, I don't know. I heard you had a pretty good spot there. The, the house is good here. All right, well, yes. we've been taking up too much time. Uh, We will be back next week. Until then, everybody, so long. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.